Well, Merry Christmas. Ooh, that's a little loud. Let's turn it down a little bit. Well, Merry Christmas. Sometimes we like to play God. And what I mean by that is sometimes we like to be the kings and the queens of our lives. We like to be in control of everything. And if I'm honest, I sometimes like to be in control of everything. But thankfully, I know some of you out there, and I know that you also, a lot of you, like to be in control of everything. Some of you out there, you like to be in control of your money. You're constantly checking your bank account to see where every single penny of your money has gone. You like to be in control of your money. For others of you out there, you like to be in control of the TV. This is probably not that big of a deal anymore because we have so many screens in our world today. But when I was growing up, we really only had one screen in the living room. And for some of you, it doesn't matter. When you get home, you are in charge of that TV and what you guys are watching as a family. For others of us, when it comes to driving, you like to be in control of driving. I drive the church van a lot of the time, and I know just from 16 and 17-year-olds, they like to be in control of driving. They're backseat drivers, and I'm convinced that more spouses have fought over driving than anything else in history. I'm sure there's a survey somewhere to prove that. The point is we like to be in control of things. We like to play God sometimes. And so tonight I want to invite you for just a moment to play out a scenario with me. Let's just Bruce Almighty this right now. Let's just say that you are God. You're God, I'm God. You're not actually God, sorry. But let's just say you are in this scenario and you have this plan in place that you are going to send your son as the savior of the world. He's going to be born as a little baby and he's going to live a perfect life. And then he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And then he's going to resurrect after three days. That plan's in place and you don't get to change it. But let's just say that you are God and you're sending a savior to be born. Who would you tell first about the birth of the savior? Who would you tell first about the birth of a Savior? Now, I have an advantage because I've been thinking about this question for a couple weeks now. I knew I was going to ask you this question. So I've been thinking about it and contemplating it, trying to figure out who I would tell first. And I've kind of narrowed it down to two people. The first person I thought of is Jimmy Kimmel. I thought if I... If I told Jimmy Kimmel about the birth of Jesus, that he could use his platform, he, he is the number one late night show in America, and I thought that if I told him about the birth of the Savior, then he could tell a whole bunch of people and maybe it would spread like wildfire. I thought maybe I would tell Jimmy Kimmel. Now the other person I thought about, and I know some people are going to be upset by what I'm about to say right now, but I thought about LeBron James. Now I know there are... A lot of you who might be hating on LeBron James, he's, he's an alright player, doesn't really matter to me. I don't love him, don't hate him. But I just thought, LeBron James, like him or not, he has a lot of influence in the world. And so, if I told LeBron James about the birth of the Savior, then he could tell other famous athletes and they could all use their platforms to tell the whole world about the birth of this Savior. But what about you? If you were God, who would you tell first about the birth of your Savior. Because when we look at the Bible, what we see is that God does something we shouldn't expect. God doesn't go to a palace first to tell a king or a queen. 
He doesn't go to Instagram or TikTok to tell some famous influencer. He doesn't even go to a celebrity or anybody famous. Instead, God goes first to some shepherds. And we have to understand who shepherds are. Shepherds in the first century, they had no social status. Shepherds are dirty, and they would probably be on the show Dirty Jobs today. Shepherds were not people you would expect God to come to. And yet the first people we see God tell about the birth of the Savior are these humble, lowly, dirty, stinky shepherds. Because God likes to use unlikely people for unlikely purposes. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want us to look at the story of where God goes first to the shepherds. And we find this in Luke chapter 2. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have one, we have some Bibles in the pews in front of you. It is on page 832 in those pew Bibles. And so that's where we're going to spend most of our time is Luke chapter 2. Just before we get to our story in verse chapter 8, we see Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, they make their way down for a census, down to this tiny little village called Nazareth. It was probably only 200 to 500 total people at that time. And when they're down there, they can't really find a place to stay. And then they find a place in a manger and a stable And so, Mary gives birth to Jesus, the Savior. And it wasn't a silent night like the song talked about, its birth. I've never been at a birth, but I can tell you one thing, it's not quiet in there. I do know that. And so through the crying, through the agony, through the pain, a Savior is born. And so our story picks up after the Savior has been born in verse 8. I'd love for you to look at it with me. Here it is in verse 8. It says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The word I want us to look at and talk about, like Warren talked about, is the word glory. It's used twice in our passage today, once in the passage just before us. But what are we even talking about when we use the word glory? Because it's really just kind of like a church word. Well, it's used 300 times in the Bible, give or take a couple. And the word glory just literally means a heaviness, a weightiness. Oftentimes it has to do with the majesty of something, the splendor of something, the reputation of something. And often, like in our passage today, it talks about the glory of the Lord. And now when you hear the phrase glory of the Lord, what I want you to think about is God's visible presence. Glory of the Lord equals God's visible presence. And we find throughout the Bible in a bunch of key places, we hear about the glory of the Lord And I want to take you to two of those stories in the book of Exodus. The first one we have, so context for the book of Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, are in Egyptian slavery. And they are crying out for God to deliver deliver them. And so that's what God does. He takes them out of Egyptian slavery. He leads them through the Red Sea. He provides for them in the wilderness. And he brings them to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And it's there at Mount Sinai that God enters a covenant with his people. A relationship with his people where he says, I will be your God forever and you will be my people. 
And so God graciously gives them what we call the law or the instructions for the good life. Sometimes we call it the Ten Commandments. And to get those Ten Commandments, he tells Moses, the leader of the Israelites, to come up onto Mount Sinai. And it's here on Mount Sinai that we get a picture of the glory of the Lord. It comes in Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. It says this, And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites who could see the glory of the Lord, it looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And so what I want us to see is that the glory of the Lord is sometimes like a consuming fire. It's dangerous to be in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Fast forward eight chapters in the book of Exodus, Exodus 32. Moses, the leader of the Israelites, he has one request for the Lord. He says, God, I want to see your glory. And I can almost hear God chuckling in the background because God knows if someone sees his glory in all of its fullness, they will die. And so here's what God says to Moses in verse 20 of Exodus chapter 33. He says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. God's glory is dangerous, but God is gracious and compassionate. And so he devises this plan for Moses to catch a glimpse of his glory. He tells Moses that he is going to cover him with his hand And he's going to go by him. And he will only get to glimpse the back of his glory. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22 and 23. Here's the plan. It says, when my glory passes by, this is God talking to Moses. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And that's exactly what happens. God passes by Moses and he catches a glimpse of God's glory and he's forever changed. In fact, when Moses goes down from Mount Sinai after seeing God's glory, the Israelites are freaked out because Moses' face is shining brightly like what Warren had over here. It was shining brightly. There was a radiance about his face because he had seen a glimpse of the glory of God. God's glory is dangerous. It's like a consuming fire. It could kill you. And so it makes sense for the shepherds to be terrified when the glory of the Lord shines down on them in our story. But then listen to what happens next, starting in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you great news that will cause great joy for all the people. There's this tension in the Bible that when God's glory shows up, often God tells his people, Do not be afraid. You do not need to fear. In fact, a lot of people have counted them up and they say there are 365 times in the Bible where God tells his people, do not be afraid, one for every single one of our days. But why though? Why are these shepherds to not be afraid? Well, it tells us in verse 11 and 12, 
It says, this is the angels talking to the shepherds, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in a cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds, they do not need to fear because their Savior is here. The shepherds do not need to fear because their Savior is here. And that's what I love so much about the Christmas story is that we are reminded that the Savior is here. Not just in the small town of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, but the Savior is here right now, saving the world, redeeming the world, healing the world, and calling every single one of us into a relationship with Him. The shepherds do not need to fear because their Savior is here. But there is this paradox in the Bible because it tells us, especially in the book of Proverbs, that the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. And so on one hand, yes, no matter what, we are to fear the Lord. Remember, He is a consuming fire. But the truth is that God doesn't want us to just stay afraid of Him. Instead, He wants us to grow in our relationship with Him where we no longer just fear Him, but we begin to confidently draw near to Him. How how do I know that? How do I know that God wants us to draw near to Him? Well, because that's what God does to us. God draws near to us. That's what the Christmas story is all about. It's all about how God has come to be our Savior. And we don't need to fear because our Savior is here. He comes to us in all of our brokenness, in all of our shame, in all of our sins, and He opens up His arms and His embrace towards us. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, he reminds us of this. This is one of my wife's favorite books lately, so I want to encourage you to read it if you haven't. It's called Gentle and Lowly. But here's what he says about Christ, and I think this is what we could say about Christmas. It says this, Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing. But God is not like that. God is not like us. God sees us in our nastiness and our sin, and yet He draws near to us anyways. And that is the story of Christmas, God coming near. And so here's what I want us to remember this Christmas Eve. It's this idea that God's glory shines brightest in Jesus. God's glory, God's visible presence shines brightest in Jesus. And what I mean by that is that when we look into the face of God or into the face of Jesus, we are looking into the face of God. Even though God's glory could kill us and consume us, even though it could have killed Moses, God invites us to see his glory in the person of Jesus. 
And you see that all throughout the New Testament. I just want to take you to two of my favorite passages that talk about God's glory. The first one is in John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, and John says this, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's the story of Christmas right there. Jesus came, He put on flesh, and He lived among us. And then it says, we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John wants us to know is that Jesus is the glory of God. Another passage comes from a different author. His name is Paul. He wrote 13 of the letters of the New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, it's kind of a scary verse at first. It says, The God of this age, talking about Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What Paul is telling us here is that when someone hears the good news about Jesus, they are hearing about the glory of God because Jesus is God. And so if those verses made no sense to you, just come back. Here's what I want you to remember. God's glory shines brightest in Jesus because Jesus is God. And so that's why after the good news has been told to the shepherds, This is what we are told about the angels in verses 13 and 14. It says, Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so you and me, we are invited to see that the veil between heaven and earth is torn. And we are able to see probably thousands and thousands and thousands of angels worshiping and praising God for the birth of this Savior. And so what do the shepherds do here? Well, they do the only logical thing. They go to see this Savior that has been born. Here's what it says in verse 15 and following. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in a manger. These shepherds, they weren't taking their time. They were in a hurry. I envision this kind of like what Black Friday used to be before all the sales were online. People used to just like trample over other people. These dudes are in a hurry because they want to see the Savior. They want to see the king. They want to see the glory of God in this little baby. They want to see the glory of God in this baby. Last week, I was able to go to St. Louis with a buddy of mine whose name is James Bond. Not making that up. His name is actually James Bond, and he's deadly, so don't mess with him. But anyways, me and James, we, uh, we have a retreat just about once a year where we dream together, we plan together, we pray together for our churches and what we hope God will do over the next year. And so we had a lot of fun together. But on one of the days, last Tuesday, we decided to go see the Basilica in St. Louis. Now the Basilica, there's a picture of it from the outside. It's the Catholic Cathedral in St. Louis and it's absolutely stunning on the outside. Here's a picture of the inside 
It's stunning. They had 40, over 41 million little pieces of mosaic up in that entire cathedral. So if you have never been there before, I want to encourage you to go. It's just a good experience. But actually, what James and I did, more than look around the giant cathedral, is we looked at this illustrated Bible that they had there. And so this illustrated Bible, it was like this big, this thick, and there were six, six of those books, so together it'd be like this thick. And an illustrated Bible is just a Bible with illustrations in it. And so uh, this was only one of 299 models in the entire world. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to see what Luke chapter 2 looked like. If there was an illustration, I wanted to see. And here's the illustration from Luke chapter 2. As you can see, if you look up top, I'm not sure if you can see it. It says, glory to God in the highest heavens. You can see those angels, those gold angels flying around. You can see the people huddled around the crib. You can see animals there. But what you can't see is a baby. There's not a baby there. Instead, shining down from heaven, what we see is this bright light, this radiant light, this light shining down because what the authors want you to know is that this baby is the glory of God. God's glory shines brightest in Jesus. And so when you look into the face of Jesus, when you hear about the good news of Jesus, You must respond in some way. When it comes to Jesus, there really is no neutrality. Even just turning our backs on him is some kind of response. And so in our story, we actually hear about three different kinds of responses that people have when it comes to the glory of God found in Jesus. It's verse 17 through the rest of verse 20. It says, When they had seen him, talking about the shepherds, They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which was just as they had been told. I think if we were to summarize the three responses that we see in this passage, we'd see first that the people wondered at Jesus. Do you see that there in verse 18? It says that all who heard it were amazed at him. So first, the people wondered at Jesus. Secondly, I think we see that Mary pondered on Jesus. Look at verse 19, where it says, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. And so the people, they wondered at Jesus. Mary pondered on Jesus. And I think the shepherds worshiped. Jesus. Look at verse 20. It says they glorified and praised God for all the things they had seen and heard. The people wondered at Jesus. Mary pondered on Jesus and the shepherds worshiped Jesus. And I think the Holy Spirit tonight is inviting us into one of those three responses to Jesus. Maybe for you, maybe you've never really had a relationship with Jesus. In fact, maybe you used to go to church, but you had a bad experience. Or maybe, maybe God didn't answer a prayer the way you wanted him to. And so really, your posture towards Jesus is you've just kind of had your arms crossed. You haven't wanted anything to do with him. But maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now to crack your heart open just a little bit. 
and to wonder at Jesus, to be amazed at Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Maybe you need to wonder at Jesus. For others of us, maybe, maybe you've known about Jesus. Maybe you've actually grown up in church and you've heard the good news about Jesus and how he was born from a virgin and he lived a perfect life and then he died on the cross for you and he resurrected from the grave proving that he truly is king and you think that's really cool. But you only think about Jesus once a week. You really only care about Jesus on Sunday and then the rest of the week you just do whatever you want. So maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to begin pondering on Jesus. To begin taking him with you every moment of every single day and to begin living your life for him. Maybe for some of you, your response to Jesus needs to be to ponder on him. And then for others of you and others of us, maybe God just wants us to worship him. I know for so many people this year and last two years has been difficult. And maybe for you, you're feeling a lot of stress from work. Or you're feeling a lot of stress from school. For others of you, maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you or someone you know is fighting through a terrible disease and you feel like giving up. Maybe what the Holy Spirit wants you to do tonight is just worship Jesus. To worship Him for all the good gifts that He has given you and for all the good gifts you know that are coming your way for some of us tonight. We just need to worship Jesus. I don't know what your response to Jesus is going to be, but what I do know is that God's glory shines brightest in Jesus, and so every single one of us, we have to respond to him in some way. And so this night, as we leave this place, I want to leave you with this one question, and I hope it sticks with you for a long time. This entire week, you just think about this question But here's the question. How will I respond to King Jesus? How will I respond to King Jesus? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your son Jesus, who reminds us that you love us. And he reminds us that you come near to us in all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And so we thank you for that, for the forgiveness that comes through him the eternal life that comes through him. We thank you for that. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond to your Holy Spirit in some way and it would ultimately lead us to worship you, Jesus, because you are worth it. And so it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. At this time in the service, we remember that Jesus is the light of the world.